Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. I'm your host today, Ryan Tripp. We'll be discussing Who Killed Jade Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. Published earlier this year by W.W. Norton. Uh, The author and historian is Richard White. He's the Margaret Byrne Professor of American History Emeritus at Stanford University. Welcome to the podcast, Professor White. Glad to be here, Ryan. So, to uh, let's let's start things off with how did you come to this project um, to research the death of James Stanford? Tell us a little bit about this project and your students. Um, I started this project as a class, and the reason it was a class is I wanted to get students to work in the archives. I wanted to get them used to. Uh, using original sources and giving them a sense of how history is created. And history is very much a creation, that they're going to go into the archives and they're not going to find a story. They're going to have to make up a story. But I had to give them a topic. I had to give them something that would interest them. And about this time, a few years earlier, um, Stanley Cutler had published a book which showed fairly conclusively that um, Jane Stanford had been murdered, something the university, Stanford University, had denied for years, and that she had died by strychnine poisoning. So I thought, if I can't get the students interested in having the founder of their university murdered, I probably can't get them interested in much. So what I did is start off with some basic documents. I gathered them together with the help of archivists and assistants. And I told the students this was the beginning, not the end of the project. But what they were going to have to do is go in and investigate the killing. They're going to have to decide, did they think she had been murdered? Who might have murdered her? Why would somebody want to murder her? What was at stake in the, in the murder? And that these are the things they weren't going to find in one document that told them this. They were going to have to put things together. They're going to have to learn to answer questions. And they're going to have to learn to um, use primary sources. So I let them loose in the archives. And that was the beginning of this project. So can you tell us, uh, give a kind of a brief background on uh, Leland Stanford and his wife, uh, uh, Jane Stanford, um, you know, talk about maybe perhaps their philanthropy, uh, who they were, who Leland Stanford was, and who James Stanford was. Leland Stanford was one of the founders of first the Central Pacific Railroad and then the Southern Pacific Railroad. Um, you know, I've written about him in a previous book, Railroaded, which was a story of transcontinental um, railroads. And Leland Stanford was not the sharpest tool in the shed. He was one of four founders, and the one who really ran the organization was Collis P. Huntington. Stanford mostly handled the politics, Um, and over the course of a long career, Stanford and Huntington came to hate each other. Um, Collis P. Huntington despised Leland Stanford. He thought he was inept. He thought he was corrupt. He didn't hold the corruption against him because Collis P. Huntington was corrupt too. 
but he thought he couldn't be trusted for anything. But the one thing that he did delegate to him was um, taking care of California politics. And Stanford became a major force in corrupting politics in California in the late 19th century. Uh, the reason they stayed together was because of the peculiar organization of the associates, as they called themselves. They'd started out as Sacramento storekeepers, and essentially they had pooled their interests in creating the Central Pacific Railroad. And the way that they worked was that all of their money was in a common pool, usually organized around various improvement companies, such as the Pacific Improvement Company. And they each held a one-quarter share. And nobody could withdraw their share without the consent of the others. So they were stuck with each other. It wasn't as if they had separate fortunes. They had a common fortune, which rose and fell with the fate of the railroads and which they always depended on the cooperation of the others to be able to access their money. Um, this meant you had four people who, over the course of time, particularly Stanford and Huntington, came to hate each other, but they were stuck with each other until they died. Now, this left Jane Stanford um, as originally just the wife of Leland Stanford. But she becomes part of the story because when they found Stanford University, which is really Leland Stanford Junior University, Leland Stanford dies soon after the founding. For really the first years of the university until her own death in 1905, Jane Stanford runs Leland Stanford Junior University. She is not just the power behind the throne, she is the throne. She is the one who determines what happens at the university. So. Tell us a little bit, uh, perhaps, uh, more about her uh, spiritualism, how it impacted uh, the university, and really her uh, vision, or rather her changing vision for the university. What people realize, or sometimes just forget, is that Stanford University is not named after Leland Stanford, and it's not named after Jane Stanford. It's named after Leland Stanford Jr., who is 15 years old when he dies on a trip Italy. Um, he's a child of their middle age. Jane Stanford is not going to have another child. And both parents are totally devastated. Jane Stanford had dabbled in spiritualism before this, but after Leland Jr.'s death, um, she becomes a full-fledged spiritualist. And though Stanford University often denies that she remained a spiritualist until her death. And Stanford University reflects this in ways I can talk about later. But for Leland Jr., the dead parents decide, and it's because the Leland Jr. appears in a dream to um, Leland Stanford Sr. while he is sitting over the deathbed of his son, that literally while he dozes off and his son dies while he's asleep, but while he's asleep, he has a dream that Leland Jr. appears to him and tells him that he should really do something, found the university for the benefit of all the children of California. And Leland Stanford does this. I mean, literally, the university is created in a dream. And they go about creating Stanford universities. Financial um, basis is complicated. I'll just leave it at that right now. But they fund the university. They hire David Starr Jordan, who's going to become the first president of the university, and he will recruit the faculty. And they set about building it in California in the late 1880s, early 1890s. And it's going to be a monument to a dead child. There is simply no understanding Stanford University without understanding that. 
If Leland Stanford Jr. had not died, if he had lived and inherited the fortune, Stanford, the land Stanford is on today would just be another spot in the sweep of suburbs south of San Francisco. But his death turns it into what will become, much later, a major university. So before we get into the, uh, the uh, there's uh, two uh, murder attempts. Um, before we get into that and the wider context, you mentioned David Starr Jordan. Can you elaborate a bit more on who uh, David Starr Jordan was, why you argue he was a surrogate, well, I guess temporarily, uh, for uh, Leland Stanford and how uh, he came into conflict with uh, our good Jane Stanford? David Starr Jordan's relationship with Jane Stanford is complicated. He's not their first choice for president of the university. He's not their second choice for president of the university. He's not even their third choice for president of the university. He is simply somebody who will accept the job at Stanford. At the time, he is president of Indiana University, and he's an ichthyologist. He studies fishes. He's um, a biologist, and he will take the job because he has promised an endowment much greater than what the funding of Indiana University was at the time, and a salary much higher than he got. And he's given the opportunity to literally work off a blank study. He will be able to create the faculty. What he doesn't realize is how shaky the funding of the university is, and the university will go into a financial crisis in the 1890s. And even when it emerges from that, he never realized what a tight hold James Stanford is going to keep over the finances of the university. So literally what he can do depends on what James Stanford is willing to let him to do because of her control over the money behind the university. And at first, this is fine because she gives him um, a great deal of leeway in recruiting faculty and operating the university. But by the late 1890s, she is beginning to pull back on the reins. She's beginning to develop her own ideas about what the university should be. And the university, in her um, eyes, should be about spiritual growth. She has this, this soul germ theory, as it's called, in the late 1890s, early 20th century. And her belief is, is that human beings are born with an eternal soul, and this soul will be educated in this life, but will continue to grow and learn in the next life. So that education in this life is only preparing the soul for education in the next life. And the next life is far more important than this life. As she tells Jordan at one point, she doesn't think the faculty realizes this or understands the importance of it, and she is perfectly right. The faculty has no idea about this, and they have no idea that that's what they're supposed to be teaching. Jordan despises her spiritualism, but he stands in need of her. So what he has to do is both give her um, some sort of assurance that he is going to cooperate with her ideas for the university, at the same time trying to curb what he regards as a series of ridiculous ideas, which will cause the university to be the laughingstock of American higher education. It's going to grow worse because of a set of scandals, one of which, which is famous in the early 20th century, is the dismissal of Professor Edward Ross, which becomes a test case for academic freedom in the United States. Jane Stanford wants Ross dismissed for a variety of reasons, 
But the major reason I think that leads to the dismissal is that she has heard that Ross in his classroom has questioned Leland Stanford's business methods and has said things like any railroad deal is a railroad steal and that Leland Stanford was in effect a thief and the Stanford fortune was ill-gotten, which was not an uncommon belief at the time. Um, she wants him gone. Um, Jordan realizes that if he kicks out Ross, he is going to ignite a scandal, which is going to hurt Stanford's reputation, which is already pretty shaky. But at the same time, if he doesn't get rid of Ross, Jane Stanford is going to pull money from the university. So what he decides to do is to try to ease Ross out. First, he decides literally to trade him, to trade him as to another um, economics department at some place or sociology department, someplace else in the country, but he can't find any other major professor who wants to come to Stanford. And in the end, Jane Stanford puts more pressure on him and he dismisses Ross. But Ross has kept a series of documents that proves that um, Jane Stanford is the one behind his dismissal. So what Ross does is give Jordan um, a sort of Judas kiss. He praises Jordan as he leaves and lays all the blame on Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford wants David Starr Jordan to then intervene to reassure the public that it's Jordan that dismissed Ross, that he did so for good reasons, and that it wasn't her interfering in academic freedom. But that is a lie. And um, Ross has all of the material to prove it's a lie. And when Jordan tries to do this but fails and, and the blame falls on James Stanford. She is furious at Jordan. This complicates her relationship with him. James Thornton had come to regard um, David Starr Jordan as a sort of surrogate for her husband. His job was to help her, protect her, and advise her. He had now failed at all of these things. And after the Ross affair, there their relationship grows more and more um, strained, and that by 1904, Jane Stanford is ready to dismiss Jordan. She wants him gone from the university. And before her death, she has already prepared the way for Jordan to be dismissed when she returns from her last trip. So Jordan and um, Stanford, their relationship is critical to virtually everything that follows around Jane Stanford's murder and to the early university. You know, I was going to ask you about at one point in her book, she uh, describes she describes her kind of one of the goals for her for the university as being progressive. And I wanted to ask through the lens of gender and sexuality. Uh, but you know what, let's uh, you can answer, perhaps partially answer that question by discussing perhaps uh, George Crothers first. You seem to uh, focus uh, to a certain extent on George uh, Crothers in your story. I think you mentioned that. How did he become a pseudo surrogate son for Jane Stanford? Um, and, you know, he was involved in a lot of uh, damage control for her and that tax amendment and then the trusts and bequests. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about George Crothers and his role in your story? Yeah, George Crothers plays a critical role and um, he does become a surrogate son. And the reason is, is because Jane Stanford sees him when he's an undergraduate at Stanford University and thinks he has a remarkable resemblance, which he apparently does, to Leland Stanford Jr., her dead son. Um, and then she does something which is both um, disturbing and weird and touching. Um, she stalks him. 
I mean, it's, it's the only word for it. It's, it's, an, it's, it's anachronistic because it wasn't a word at the time, but she gets in her carriage and will literally follow him around campus to get a glimpse of him. Later on, he isn't going to become a lawyer and he's going to go to work for Stanford. He's not going to go to work for Stanford University. He's going to work for Jane Stanford, but he will not take money for it. And the reason he won't take money for it is because Jane Stanford employs virtually everybody she knows and she uses money to control it. He acts as a legal advisor to her, but refuses um, to take the money. And she asks him to come in to help with some things. And one thing that, she, that particularly disturbs her is the idea that Stanford University is going to be taxed. There is no California law at the time that universities or libraries or other institutions are going to be non-taxable. And what she wants is that Stanford University um, be exempt from taxation. And Crothers undertakes to do that, but in doing that, he has to look at the founding documents of the university. And what Crothers finds is that these founding documents, many of which were held drafted with, with the help of Leland Stanford, are an incredible mess. The university is, for all practical purposes, illegal. It lacks any legal standing for being a university. It violates California laws about corporations. It violates California laws about trusts. It violates all kinds of laws, and the only remedy that um, Crothers can find for it is that he will introduce an amendment to the California Constitution, which will essentially exempt Stanford University from the laws that it violates. It will give it a special status, and he will secure that, but the price for doing it is he drops the tax exemption. It's not dropped totally. The legislature can and eventually does make Stanford tax exempt, but he realizes tax exemption means nothing unless he, cre he um, cleans up the legal mess that Leland Stanford had created and bequeathed to both Jane Stanford and Stanford University. And that's his major role in the first part of this. He sets up the um, legalization of Stanford University by amending the California Constitution. And after that, he goes to work on the finances, setting up the trust, the wills, the ways in which money will be transferred from Jane Stanford to the university. But this is a complicated story of the book. I won't rehash it all here. But the key thing is, is that Jane Stanford never really relinquishes control. And furthermore, George Crothers never becomes satisfied that all of the trusts and the wills are going to stand up to um, legal challenge for a variety of reasons, one of which is Jane Stanford's spiritualism. She says publicly that her major financial advisors and legal advisors are her dead husband and her dead son and um, ghosts. To put it simply, lack legal standing when somebody says that, in fact, all of this stuff is being dictated from the grave, that creates a challenge. There's going to be a challenge, which is simply this is going to be close to it, too, is that um, people doubt Jane Stanford's sanity, and he's afraid that challenges to her sanity is going to make her wills and trusts um, invalid. And the final thing, he thinks people are going to find out that the person behind cleaning up this whole mess and getting these, these trusts and wills written is George Crothers and that he had an undue influence and that her family, the Lathrop family, will file a challenge to all of this saying that, in fact, this is not the product of James Stanford, it's the product of George Crothers, it's undue influence, and this should um, can set aside the wills and the trusts. 
So he is, even as he does this work, a worried man that the work is never going to be good enough to um, withstand the legal challenge that could come with James Stanford's death. Just really, really briefly, can you address her, uh, Jane Chansford's uh, criticism of the faculty and those like the board of trustees reform efforts and then uh, Crothers' role and kind of damage control for that? I was kind of interested in how, well, how and why that was, why, why he felt the impulse to, do, to engage in damage control. Stanford's board of trustees is one of the things that, um, that, <laughs> that the original Stanford founding documents um, screwed up. The Board of Trustees until about 1902, 1903 has absolutely no power. They're a bunch of Leland Stanford's cronies and they do whatever Jane Stanford or Leland Stanford wants them to do. They have no independent power. When they do begin to get independent power, um, Crothers and another trustee, Horace Davis, realize that most of the people on the Board of Trustees are as crooked as Leland Stanford. Um, they're they're finding using their trusteeship as ways to rake off small amounts of money from the university. They don't do their jobs. They know very little about higher education. They mostly want the university to be conservative politically, um, if not conservative financially. Um, that he realizes to turn this into a, a real university, he has to try to get the board of trustees to function as a board of trustees, which means getting some more reliable people on it. He also has to get them to stand up to Jane Stanford. That in, when she wants to make the university a place that will um, cultivate soul germ theory, there has to be a board of trustees who says, well, you know, this actually violates the founding documents, which says this is a non-sectarian university where you're not going to um, teach any particular religious doctrines, which he wants to turn the um, university over to the Catholic Church, which he wants to do at one time. That she needs a board of trustees to say, well, actually, we can't found this university. We have a constitutional amendment that's a non-sectarian university and you want to turn the whole thing over to a church that's really not going to wash and most critically when even though she had been one of the people behind making Stanford Stanford University co-educational which was a major breakthrough at the time she wants to banish women from the main campus um, which will again violate the founding documents of the university George Crothers Jordan and some members of the Board of Trustees, but hardly all of them, have to struggle to convince her that she cannot banish women students. So they do agree to a series of fairly draconian um, measures which will limit the number of women who can enroll at Stanford and will very much limit the kinds of things that they're allowed to do while they're enrolled at the university. So what Crothers is engaged in as a trustee is this endless battle to both stay on the good side of Jane Stanford, because that's the only way the university will keep going, while at the same time curtail a series of things she wants to do, which she quite frankly regards as a lunatic um, and the wreck of the university. All right. Thank you. So uh, let's let's sort of get into the uh, meat of this. Let's get into the, to the, to the murder attempts, uh, by way of Bertha Burner. Uh, so, uh, uh, why was her memoir, Mrs. Leland Stanford, an intimate account so crucial to your uh, research? And if you can talk about perhaps, uh, uh, Albert Beverly and her male, male paramours and Jane, her relationship with Jane Stanford, I think that would be helpful. Okay. Um, 
Bertha Berner becomes the critical figure. She's much of what we know about Jane Stanford, we know because of Bertha Berner's memoir, but she said Jane Stanford had asked her to write. And Bertha Berner is an understandable person to write the memoir because Bertha Berner had met Jane Stanford right after Leland Jr.'s death um, when Bertha Berner was 19. And Bertha Berner um, was with her not the whole time, as we'll see, but much of the time until her death in 1905. So for the critical portion of, of um, Jane Stanford's life, the part where she really exerted influence over the university, the part where she became an ardent spiritualist, Bertha Berner is an eyewitness. Now, Bertha Berner will write the story of her time with Jane Stanford um, in a memoir which has been treated as gospel by some readers, but other people like George Crothers, if you go back in Crothers' correspondence, he says, everything that Bertha Berner says is not true. And it's true that one of the things that I began to find out when I began to compare Bertha Berner's memoir of those years to the documents I was finding in the archives is much of what Bertha Berner said was lies. But that turned out to be a red herring. Um, everybody in my story lies. And tracking down Bertha Berner's lies made me feel that I was actually getting to the bottom of things, but I wasn't. I was just being distracted. The critical thing about Bertha Berner's memoir is not the stuff she lied about. It's the stuff she never mentioned at all. You would think from Bertha Berger's memoir that she was with Jane Stanford all the time from the mid-1880s until 1905, but in fact, that was not the case. There were numerous ruptures where Jane Stanford fired her or let her go, or where Bertha Berner uh, quit, where she would be gone sometimes for six months, sometimes for several years. She had to be lured back, probably by payments from um, Jane Stanford's brother, um, Charles Lathrop, because um, Jane Stanford was so difficult to deal with that they had to have somebody to be help her and take care of her. So Bertha Berner leaves all of that stuff out. Bertha Berner will detail some travels, not detail other travels. So the critical thing I began to realize is Bertha Berner's memoir is useful, but the thing it's most useful for is the thing she refuses to talk about. Now, among the things she refuses to talk about is Albert Beverly. Albert Beverly is a butler in the early 20th century. And he will accompany um, Bertha Berner, Jane Stanford, and a maid, Elizabeth Richmond, in Jane Stanford's tour around the world, which is not totally around the world because they get to Egypt and turn back and come back the way they came. Um, but it's a long trip across Asia and into Egypt and Africa. Um, during that trip, if not before, Jane Stanford and Albert Beverly became lovers. And even before that, though it might have originated on the trip, they had become business partners. What they're doing is raking off a certain amount of money from household expenses um, and skimming that money off and putting it into their own pockets. They do the purchasing, they get false bills, they take off the difference between what the um, what they pay and what the um, merchants say they charge. And they have this going on, as Bertha Berner will later admit, though she says she gave the money back to Jane Stanford, throughout the trip across um, Asia and Africa and 
according to Elizabeth Richmond, this had begun while they were actually living in California. So Beverly and Berner are partners in a dual sense. They're lovers and they are engaged in the kind of skimming, which Beverly will later say is totally common among English servants. Nobody thought twice about it, but that is certainly not true among American servants. And that one of the fears is, is that James Stanford will find out about this. All right. So, uh, so we've arrived. Can you, uh, perhaps briefly, uh, explicate the, uh, so-called Poland spring water poisoning in, in SF, the sort of, so-called the uh, first murder attempt in the context of what's going on, um, perhaps in San Francisco, uh, print cultures and just wider San Francisco history. Okay. In, in 1905, Jane Stanford is back from her trip to, from, um, around the world trip. And when she gets back, Albert Beverly says he quits to spend more time with his family. Other people say Jane Stanford fired. Um, I think the, the evidence is clearly that he resigns and stays on some reasonable terms with Jane Stanford. Um, so Jane Stanford at this time decides that she's going to reopen her um, mansion on Knob Hill in California. Jane Stanford is has a summer home on what is the Stanford campus that today and was then too. And she has her main mansion on Knob Hill in San Francisco, where she has heavy investments in San Francisco street railways, where her husband had been intimately involved in San Francisco politics, and where she is probably the richest woman in San Francisco. She is socially connected there. And through people her husband had known, she is politically connected there. San Francisco is at the time an incredibly corrupt city. It had been for quite some time. What had happened is by now, there had been a labor administration that had come in. It kicked out the older, it was, well, I don't want to give you the whole of San Francisco politics. And it succeeded a reform administration, which had kicked out the earlier Southern Pacific machine. And in succeeding the reform administration, it claimed to be even more reform because it was going to give labor power. But under Boss Roof and uh, Eugene Schmitz, the mayor, it becomes also quite corrupt. There are all kinds of payoffs from Chinatown to protect gambling, from so-called French restaurants to protect prostitution, from people selling liquor in clubs that are open after hours. All of this money just paid off first the police and then filters up through that roof machine. So if you're dealing in San Francisco at the time, if there's going to be any crime committed, um, you're going to have to deal with the police. And the police actually are cooperating with a guy named Kid Kelly. And Kid Kelly becomes um, a man who will eventually collect payoffs to the police at Chile chief of police, but even at the time, he's under police protection. He's allowed to, to um, run certain rackets as long as he informs on other rackets. So it's a very complicated situation, even for a rich woman when she goes there. But all of this, she wants to go back because she her, daughter, her niece, um, Jenny Lathrop, is going to have her coming out party that winter. She wants to have that. She wants to open up the mansion for dinners, for her husband's old associates, for the faculty at Stanford University, for society friends. She's planning a full social season in San Francisco in January, February, March of the winter of 1905. 
But before, when this has barely gotten underway, there's been a couple of dinners already, she goes to bed one night and she drinks her Poland Spring bottled water, which is still on the market. Today, you can go get Poland Spring bottled water. Um, it comes in a green bottle. That time, it was a glass bottle. Today, the bottle's plastic. Um, and she has it by her bed, and she goes to take a drink, and it tastes incredibly bitter. Um, she spits it out, gags, and immediately will start vomiting. She um, will stick her finger down her throat and throw up, at the same time calling first for her maid and then having the maid um, get Bertha Burner to come in and look at the water. There's stuff floating in the water. Um, everybody agrees at the time there's, there's stuff floating in the water, and the maid, Elizabeth Richmond, says, I will take the water. I will take it down to uh, a pharmacy where there's a chemists, as they were called at the time, to analyze this water, to see what's wrong with it. He doesn't feel um, adequate to do the analysis, and he will send it out to a laboratory, and then about a week later, we'll get the report back. But it turns out that what they see floating in the water is rat poison. Somebody had taken a healthy dose of rat poison and poured it into Jane Stanford's water. Somebody had tried to poison her. Somebody had tried to kill her. Um, only that, that they overdid it is what saved her life. They put too much in, which caused her to gag before she really swallowed any of it. And her vomiting and cleaning out her mouth had saved her. But it was very clear that there had been a poisoning, and that poisoning takes place in January of 1905. Can you, uh, this is only, I think, a, a minor component of your argument, but uh, can you elucidate a bit uh, rat poison's connections to uh, suicide in uh, strychnine's connections to suicide in uh, SF print cultures at the time? I thought that was a fascinating um, uh, argument. Yeah, what, one of the things I did was started looking at newspapers about, um, you know, how often did people use strychnine to kill themselves? And it turns out in San Francisco, if you count the number of suicides, a relatively small minority take place by using strychnine, but they are there. But if you go wider, the press will report strychnine poisonings virtually all the time. It becomes a constant theme. They take place in counties around San Francisco. They take place in San Francisco. They take place in Los Angeles. They take place across the nation. So that anybody reading the San Francisco papers, and there's a vibrant print culture at the time, will be quite familiar with um, strychnine poisoning. And it's closer than even that. One of the old employees of Stanford University, a man who had first worked for Leland Stanford and then continued to work for the university after its founding, his wife will commit suicide by strychnine poisoning in December, the month before Jane Stanford's poisoning. Anybody looking over the local papers in Palo Alto will know that, in fact, if you put strychnine poisoning in strychnine into the water and somebody swallows it, one of the suspicions will be murder, but the other suspicion will be suicide, that it can make a death seem like suicide, if in fact it kills them. So that the idea of strychnine being used to either poison somebody or commit suicide is everywhere in the 19th century. But you have to be able to decide whether this poisoning is going to be uh, suicide or murder. In this case, since James Stanford is very much alive and very much shocked, it is not suicide. Interesting. Uh, so, how did the uh, how did the Morse detectives um, come to be retained on this case? Once the um, 
report comes back, and it comes back after Dame Stanford has hosted another dinner, and her brother is actually in the mansion. Um, the report comes, and Dame Stanford is, according to Bertha Burner, horrified. Who would try to kill me? I, nobody has a reason to try to kill me. And she consults both of her brother, Charles Lathrop, who is employed by the university, um, and with a guy, Mountford Wilson, who is one of her attorneys. And what they decide is something that might appear shocking to us, but is, would not be surprising to anybody at the time. This is not a case for the police. The last thing they want to do is call in the police. If they call in the police, they're going to be leaks. It's going to be all over the papers. Um, it's going to be bad publicity for the Stanford family. It's going to be bad publicity for Stanford University. It's just going to be a world of trouble. Instead, what they do is go to the Harry Morse detective agency, which is a major detective agency at the time. And Harry Morris is going to bring in his lead detective, a guy called Jules Callendon, who himself is very well connected. Callendon is married to the daughter of one of the representatives in the House of Representatives from San Francisco to a congressman. So he has all kinds of connections. And one of the reasons you hire somebody like Callendon is both to find the poisoning, to see who, in fact, in the household might have been implicated in this poisoning so they can get rid of them. Um, but the other thing is to keep the whole thing quiet. And that's what Callendon sets out doing. Now, you might think hiring private detectives to keep a crime quiet rather than to solve a crime is um, unusual, but it's not unusual. This is, this is what private detectives do. It's how private detectives operate in the early 20th century in San Francisco and elsewhere. And that's what they want Calendon and Harry Morse to do in this case. All right. So why did uh, Jane Stanford subsequently uh, decide uh, that she wanted to uh, go to Hawaii and then uh, Japan later in the year? Okay. One of the things that happens is that um, her brother and... um, Probably the Morse Detective Agency tells her, look, we don't know who did this. And until we know who did it, we can't be sure they're not going to try to do it again. So it would probably be best if you left the mansion for a while and um, go get some rest. She also, at the same time, catches the flu, influenza. It's a very bad case of it. So she can say she's going away from San Francisco and it's fog and it's cold for her health, and she goes down to San Jose, um, just south of San Francisco. But unfortunately, it's a very rainy winter. It's cold there, too. She recovers from influenza, but what she is really there for, as she tells people, not everybody, but she tells some people, close friends, is to escape the events in San Francisco. When she's there for a while, because it's cold and it's rainy, um, she's getting restless, uh, she's advised, well, by her doctor, she says, you should go someplace warmer. Um, he advises going to Los Angeles, but this is a rainy winter all over California. There's no sense. You're not going to escape the rain by going down to um, California, Southern California. So she decides instead to go to Hawaii, where she uh, has been before, and it's a place that she loves. And Hawaii is only going to be a way station on a trip to Japan. And so what she'll do is she'll come back to San Francisco to pack, and she won't stay at her mansion. She's scared to stay at the mansion. She'll stay at a hotel, and she'll stay with Bertha Burner, and she doesn't register under her own name. She just will stay there even though her name doesn't appear on the register because she's so worried about a second poisoning, even though she'll return to the mansion to pack. She wants Bertha Burner to go on this trip with her. Um, she also asked her niece, 
Jenny Lathrop to go. For reasons I never discovered, Jenny Lathrop says, I will not go if Bertha Berger goes. Um, so Bertha Berger goes, not Jenny Lathrop. But Bertha Berger does not want to go. Bertha Berner's own mother is sick. She wants to take care of her own mother. She feels she has more of an obligation to her own mother than Jane Stanford. But on the other hand, her financial state is um, tied to Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford is both the person who pays her, and she knows from Mountford Wilson that she has written into Jane Stanford's will. And Jane Stanford changes her wills all the time. She refuses to go. Jane Stanford can change her will and cut off Bertha Berner's inheritance. Um, Jane, Bertha Berner then asks Jane Stanford, well, why don't we bring, her out, bring Albert Beverly? Because she's already been on a trip with Jane Stanford. And as she will say later, I could not handle her alone. Um, Bertha, uh, Jane Stanford is very clear. I will not have a man with me on this trip. It will not allow Albert Beverly to come. So it's going to be um, a maid, and it's going to be Bertha Berner who will go on the trip. The trip will stop in Hawaii, and then they will go on to Japan, and they will depart to go to the Moana Hotel in Hawaii as the first stage of this trip. On the, on the um, ship voyage, and indeed when she gets to Hawaii, Jane Stanford is very open with people she talked to. She is leaving California because somebody has attempted to poison her. And she is fleeing, she says, whoever the poisoner is. Interesting. So, uh, the actual murder. What happened at the Moana Hotel in Honolulu? Um, if you can address what happened on uh, February 28th, 1905. I think now, for our listeners, that would be uh, uh, helpful. February 28th, 1905 is the last day of Jane Stanford's life. And as I say in the book, it's the, the day that we have the most details on because there's going to be a coroner's inquest over this and people are going to testify. <coughs> Excuse me. Jane Stanford is going to um, sleep relatively late, get up, and they're going to go on um, coach ride to the coast north of Honolulu um, to see the sites. There will be a picnic and they will eat in, in the shade. It's a day of about 70 degrees. Jane Stanford is apparently fairly happy. She's the maid reports that she's singing on the way um, to the coast. She enjoys the picnic very much. She eats what is going to be a fairly hearty lunch. And then she's going to come back to the coach towards Honolulu. They're going to stop at a sack Store, I think it's a sack store, a, a store in um, Honolulu where she's going to be fitted for a dress. So she, clearly she has plans after this. And then they're going to go back to the hotel where she takes a nap. And because the lunch had been so large, they decide she and Bertha Berner, they're only going to have soup for dinner. They have soup for dinner. She goes out on the balcony. She talks to people there. And then she will retire relatively early to go to bed. Before she goes to bed, she asks Bertha Berger that to bring her uh, bicarbonate of soda. She often took bicarbonate of soda to help her in her um, digestion. And also what's a cascara pill, which is a pill given at the time, which is, again, to help digestion. And in it is a small amount of strychnine. Strychnine is used as a medicine at the time. And so it's going to be small amounts, which she's taken for years. People take all the time. It's not enough to cause any poisoning. And she asked Bertha Berner to leave them by the table. She's not ready to take them yet. She's not ready to retire. And she will then go to bed. Um, Bertha Berner and the maid will go off to their own rooms and go to sleep. And 
sometime in the middle of the night, it appears that um, James Stanford went to bed without taking the bicarbonate, then got up, took the bicarbonate, and soon after that um, is gagging and choking and screaming for help. Um, the man next door has already come out, um, wakes Burner and it wakes the maid. They come down. She screams that she's been poisoned. She asks to get a doctor. The doctor is a doctor at the hotel. The hotel doctor will come down. And what he will do is, because Jane Stanford demands it, she will tell him, I've been poisoned. They've poisoned me again. I need a stomach pump. He will send for a stomach pump. Um, as he watches her, he begins to determine that she is indeed showing the symptoms of strychnine poisoning. Um, but the poison this time acts very, very quickly. The poison um, will take effect within 10, 15 minutes. Jane Stanford will be dead. She will have the kind of convulsions that are typical of strychnine poisoning. She will have all the physical marks of strychnine poisoning. She will say that she has been poisoned. And her last words are going to be, this is a terrible death to die, which are revealing words because spiritualists do not use the word death. They will use all kinds of infant euphemisms like passing over, going to the other side. Um, but Jane Stanford, when she sees death, calls it by name. And she will die in that hotel room. Jane Stanford knew she'd been murdered. And what's interesting about the last word she says is that spiritualists did not use the word death. Spiritualists use euphemisms like passing over or going to the other side. But when Jane Stanford knew she had been poisoned and she knew she was dying, she called death by name. This is a terrible death to die, she said. And after uttering those words, her jaws locked as they did strict eye poisoning, and she died. Okay. Um, if possible, could you address uh, uh, some of the major suspects in, in, in a couple of the major suspects in case more specifically, why did stories keep on changing? Okay. Jane Stanford's second poisoning uh, ends up disrupting the story of her first poisoning. Townden had succeeded very briefly for several weeks in keeping the murder quiet, and then when, in fact, news of the poisoning investigation did break in the papers, he tried to say that, in fact, it had not been intended to murder Jane Stanford at all. In a quarrel among servants, who was trying to get the blame shifted to Bertha Burner by Elizabeth Richmond. Um, all kinds of stories were, were floated, but the fact is, by now, the cat was out of the bag. There had been a poisoning in San Francisco, um, mansion and Calendon's attempt to say that it hadn't been a real serious poisoning at all and never been intended to kill Jane Stanford collapse when Jane Stanford dies. Clearly the first poisoning is um, connected to the second poisoning and that both poisonings were intended to kill Jane Stanford. So we now have investigations of two poisonings, the poisoning in the Stanford mansion and this poisoning in Hawaii. And the police reasonably believe, both in Hawaii and in San Francisco, that these poisonings are connected, probably by the same person. So the first thing they do is to go in on the people who are present at the first murder. They have to figure out who is there, who had the opportunity to, um, to kill her, and who had the means to kill her by getting strychnine. So what they start doing is, as they often do in these kinds of things, 
sweating the suspects. And the suspects are going to be Elizabeth Richmond, because she had been the maid present at the first poisoning. They're going to talk to Bertha Burner, because she had been present at the first poisoning. They're going to question the, set the Chinese servants, particularly Ah Wing, because he had access to Jane Stanford's bedroom, because he was the most important servant in the house. And they're going to begin to even question Albert Beverly because of his connections with Elizabeth Richmond and the stories that he had been dismissed by Jane Stanford. The police argot at the time is they're sweating them. Uh, and by sweating them, they mean that pretty much they do the constant police interrogation. They try to make them wonder what other people have said. They try to get them in contradictions of their stories. They have them repeat things over and over again. And in fact, it soon becomes apparent, particularly after Jane Stanford's death, that all of the people are lying, at least about some of the things that happened that night. Their stories are inconsistent, and they're going to be uh, contradicted by other things and by physical evidence. So as the investigation proceeds in San Francisco, it appears that all the servants in San Francisco are lying. At the same time, they're having Bertha Berner testify at the coroner's jury. And Bertha Berner, though they don't know it at the time, is going to be giving evidence which is going to be inconsistent with things she had said earlier and things she had done while in California. So Bertha Berner, though the police don't recognize it, is also going to be lying. So the, all the suspects in this are going to be lying, and there's also David Starr Jordan. David Starr Jordan um, immediately decides that he's going to go to Hawaii to bring the body home. What people don't know is that James Stanford was ready to dismiss David Starr Jordan. The person who does know that is George Crothers. George Crothers had been told by David Stanford the night before he leaves, and the Board of Trustees were going to get the message that David Starr Jordan was to be dismissed. So another person who has a motive to um, kill James Stanford is David Starr Jordan, and it's apparent that David Starr Jordan knew this, because David Starr Jordan is in the midst of what sounds very much from his letters like a nervous breakdown in the winter of 1905. All of these people have reasons to disguise their motives for um, killing Jane Stanford, and all of these people lie and contradict themselves as they undergo interrogation. So how did uh, T.J. Schwab uh, become a person of interest? And if you can uh, discuss, connected to that, of course, is uh, the role of uh, newspapers in this investigation. Yeah, one of the things that happens is in, in the 19th century, investigative reporting was quite literally investigative reporting, that the police share information with the newspapers, and the newspapers um, undertake their own kind of investigations, that they act literally as private detectives. So the poisoning of James Stanford, once it hits the papers, unleashes just a frenzy of investigative journalism in, in um, San Francisco. And what they're looking for is a scoop. They're looking for sensational stories. So it doesn't matter if the story is true or not. All kinds of things hit the papers. But you have to begin to sift out what might be true in all of this. And so one of the things I did was reading through the papers, and I noticed a, a story which was just the throwaway. Um, one of the things that they're looking for is the bicarbonate of soda. 
um, what is the source of the bicarbonate of soda that Jane Stanford took? And so they're interrogating people at pharmacies and other things. But that, that is this kind of odd search. They can narrow the bicarbonate down, and it's things they can learn from it. But what they're not searching for is strychnine. Because the strychnine in that bicarbonate of soda, they soon find out in Hawaii, is pure strychnine. It's not rat poison. Somebody put pure strychnine in there. And pure strychnine is really hard to get. Pure strychnine, you have to sign a poison book if you buy it. Or else you have to be a chemist or doctor or, let's say, a scientist to be able to get it if you're going to use it. One of the things that turns out is that looking for the bicarbonate, they first blame it on a guy named Schwab, who is a, um, a clerk at a drugstore. And Schwab began to investigate, and Schwab, it turns out, had once had his own drugstore. He'd once been fairly um, well-to-do, at least in the sense of owning his own business, being a town official in Mountain View, California, but he lost everything. Not only did he lost everything, but his marriage broke up. By the time I discover him in Palo Alto, he's living in a hotel, he's working in a drugstore, even though he used to own a drugstore. Um, and he is uh, also selling insurance. He's also, it turns out, embezzling. He was stealing money from the drugstore, and the police are going to go after him, both because they will bring him back down, but then when they find out that he's worked in the drugstore, it's the drugstore they suspect that the poison or the um, bicarbonate of soda might have come from, they go looking for him again. The reason they go looking for him again is that somebody, and the somebody is an owner, a metal worker in San Francisco, who probably is connected with his ex-wife, that's my surmise had heard a story about P.J. Schwab that had something to do with Jane Stanford's murder. The only connection I can fathom that P.J. Schwab would have Jane Stanford's murder is that A, he is a druggist, B, he's working at a drugstore, which is suspected of being the source of strychnine, and C, witnesses say he had become a friend, and friend is used in the late 19th and early 20th century in the same broad sense that it's used in the 21st century. He had become a friend of Bertha Berger. Both are German immigrants, both speak German, both had had a relationship of some sort. The police clearly are interested in P.J. Schwab. They go up there, they interview him, and that's the end of the story. The police say, no, it's just gossip, it's rumor, and there's nothing we can really attach this to. And P.J. Schwab is going to drop from the newspaper accounts. So this is a uh, clarifying question for me. Why was the uh, discovery, so-called discovery, of the Palo Alto package of bicarbonate soda that you alluded to in Hawaii, why was that potentially significant? Because Jay, because Bertha Berner and the servants had told contradictory stories about Jane Stanford and bicarbonate of soda. Um, the bicarbonate of soda, they said she took, you know, very frequently. But then they also said none of the bicarbonate of soda that she got in Hawaii had been packed in San Francisco, and this is the first time we used it. But it's been packed in San Francisco. That's the first time they used it. Um, then she had not taken bicarbonate of soda for several weeks. And they also said she hadn't taken it in San Jose. So then the argument becomes, as they begin to investigate, well, it turns out she did take bicarbonate of soda down to um, San Jose, but when she tasted it, it tasted sour, so she dumped it out. And plus, the doctors were worried that there might be contamination in that if she'd been poisoned once, they told her to get rid of all your medicines. 
So someplace in between San Jose and departing for um, San Francisco, she had bought new bicarbonate of soda. She was not going to use the old bicarbonate of soda because it was sour and because she was afraid it had been tampered with. So the question is, where did they get the new bicarbonate of soda? It's one of the things that vanishes from Bertha Barry's account. She do, they will stop in Palo Alto on the way back, and Jane Stanford will buy bicarbonate of soda in the same drugstore um, that one of the drugstore Schwab had worked in. Um, so that becomes suspicious because Bertha Burner never mentions stopping there and never mentions they bought the bicarbonate of soda there. But that is the most likely source of the bicarbonate of soda. So then they can narrow down whoever put strychnine in that bicarbonate of soda had to do so between the time Bertha Burner and Jane Stanford returned to San Francisco and the time they get on the ship if they poisoned it beforehand or else, since the soda's locked away, it had to be put into her bicarbonate of soda in Hawaii itself. So the purchase of the bicarbonate of soda is going to be absolutely critical to figuring out how the poisoning took place. Duly noted. Uh, so th there's also the uh, Tay Wang letter. Why was that important? Ted Jordan is meanwhile gone to Hawaii. He's, he says he's not going to investigate, but he immediately starts investigating in ways that we'll talk about in a second. But meanwhile, the San Francisco um, police are undergoing their investigation. And, and this is a very racist society in the early 20th century, that the easiest person to pin something on will be um, Awe. He's Chinese. Um, the Chinese are suspected, as you know, as witnesses will say, though they know very little about Al Wei, is that um, a Chinese servant will do anything to get the money to go back to um, China. And that Al Wei, they said, knows he has money in the will, and that he, of course, because he's Chinese, he will kill James Stanford to get that money. And then they get a letter, a very mysterious letter, which is is hard to decipher. It was clearly written originally with Chinese characters and then translated by somebody who did not speak English well. So most of it is utterly unintelligible, but you can read enough of this letter to know that there is somebody, Tai Wing, who is saying he knows something about Jane Stanford's poisoning. And it has to do with um, organized crime in Chinatown, who he says have actually stolen his wife, and wife stealing was something that happened in Chinatown by criminal syndicates at the time. Um, he wants his wife back in exchange for help getting his wife back. He wants to meet with the detective and David Starr Jordan because he knows something about um, the murder of James Stanford. David Starr Jordan isn't there. David Starr Jordan isn't wise, so he can't meet with him, but the detective will forward the letter to David Starr Jordan. It still is in David Starr Jordan's papers. And the only thing I can think of is that Ah Wing is being set up, because the only Chinese suspect for David Starr, for Jane Stafford's murder that I'm able to find is Ah Wing, and that somebody is willing to um, sell Ah Wing, um, innocent or guilty, to the police in exchange for police help in getting his wife back. Pretty much it seems to me that while David Starr Jordan is in Hawaii, the police are setting up Ah Wing as the fall guy. All right. So uh, we're getting to the end here. Uh, so how did uh, David Starr Jordan, how did he come to uh, narrate uh, the uh, probable murder of uh, Jane Stanford as, as being the result of natural causes and then also accuse uh, 
somebody else, I think Francis Humphreys, of, of, of murder. I mean, if you can clarify, that would be great. Yeah, what David started doing that is immediately arrived in Hawaii. He's hoping to arrive there before the coroner's jury verdict is in. He's hoping clearly to influence the coroner's jury, but as the ship docks, he finds out the coroner's jury has already said James Stanford had died of strychnine poisoning at the hands of person or persons unknown. So clearly, James Stanford has been murdered in the eyes of the coroner's jury and the Hawaiian police. And he says, that's fine, that's horrible, um, I can't really believe that, but still, that's not my job. I'm here just to take James Stanford's body home. That's not what he's there for. He's there to undermine the investigation into James Stanford's murder. And what he does is he hires a doctor, uh, a doctor who had no contact with um, the investigation, had not attended the autopsy, had never examined Jane Stanford's body, he did not know anything about the evidence, did not know anything about what had happened at the Moana Hotel, but who will agree to interview Bertha Byrne and will agree to see notes that have been gathered by Clinton, who's a detective, the detective who accompanies George. So what they do is start a parallel investigation. They don't have access to most of the primary evidence. And what they do is do their, what they claim is their interview with Bertha Berner, and it is an interview, is get her to contradict everything she said told the coroner's jury. They take away that this is a terrible death to die. They, ter- they take away all the signs of strychnine poisoning. They take away everything that would seem to implicate that Jane Stanford had died of strychnine poisoning, her own claims that she had been poisoned earlier. And what they then do is write their own report in which the doctor will say, well, what Jane Stanford really died of was essentially indigestion. She ate soggy gingerbread and candy at the picnic. She'd been chilled, even though it's 70 degrees, and there'll be a reporter being chilled. She was not used to exercise, though, in fact, she walks five miles a day. Um, and that all of this had caused indigestion, and the gas had created uh, pressure on her heart, and the pressure on her heart had then led her to panic. It's the kind of way in which most diseases of women are being going to be diagnosed as hysteria. She got hysterical. That triggered a heart attack, and she died of a heart attack in Hawaii. There was no poisoning involved at all. According to Waterman's theory, she could have been saved by a fart, basically, if she had just released her gas. So she is going to, he is going, David Star Journey is going to float this, say that the whole stuff about poisoning had been designed around the doctors who had done the autopsy, the doctors who had been present at her death. All they wanted to do in ways he didn't explain is collect the larger fee, figuring they'd get a bigger fee if she was um, poisoned. How that was going to be the case is never explained. And he will then take this, and as he leaves, he will release it on shipboard. He will announce that um, Jane Stanford had died a natural death, and that's what he's going to report to the San Francisco police. And he does report to the San Francisco police when he gets back. San Francisco police have said they promised the thorough investigation. They're going to go through all the evidence that had been gathered. They don't do that. We had a few hours of Jordan landing. They are going to announce that they accept Jordan's conclusion. Jane Stanford had died a natural death, and that is going to be the end of their investigation. It's pretty crazy. So uh, how did the uh, 1906 earthquake uh, transform uh, the university's connection to the Stanfords into, quote, a series of absences. I think that was an interesting argument at the end there. And what do you hope readers will learn from your story? I know at the epilogue, you offer an interpretation of uh, the perpetration of the crime. Um, what do you hope uh, uh, readers, readers will glean from your overall narrative? Okay. Um, 1905, 
you know, Jen Stafford's funeral is going to be ironic because everybody who's marching, not everybody, but the leading mourners behind her casket as she goes to the mausoleum are going to be suspects in her murder. Uh, Wing is going to be there. Bertha Burner is going to be there. Um, David Stark Jordan is going to be there. Um, I don't think Elizabeth Richmond or Albert Beverly were there. But three of the leading suspects are going to be the leading mourners um, as she goes to the to the tent. People are still suspicious. Fremont Older, who's a, a newspaper publisher, thinks that this whole story is very fishy. Um, George Crothers knows it is. He knows she's been murdered. But he's not going to do anything because investigating that is only going to endanger the university. His goal is to make sure that her wills and trusts stand. And that's his job, to make sure that money is quickly transferred to the university so there won't be challenges to it. Older is going to push things. But he gets nowhere. Jordan gives him a lot of ammunition because Jordan just can't keep his mouth shut. He continues to try to blame the Hawaiian police, the Hawaiian doctors, and um, that, in fact, the whole thing had been engineered by the San Francisco poisoning, had been engineered by the servants, things he knows nothing about. Until finally, Lathrop and Callan convince him he just better shut up and stop talking. Um, it still would have gone on, but the 1906 earthquake is going to destroy most of the police records. It's going to destroy, as far as I can tell, the Morse Agency records. Some Stanford records, a lot of Stanford records will survive, but not all of them. But the major thing it does is change the topic. Um, the murder of James Stanford is vanishes from the front pages. The earthquake dominates all of the news. Nobody's going to push this much further. And the other thing it does is it takes away from the Stanford presence on campus. The entrance to the university in 1905 when James Stanford died is a monument to Stanford. You have gone through the Memorial Arch, which is this huge arch, which is never going to be rebuilt, which shows the coming of civilization to California. Uh, the round man is among the sculpted frieze on the arch is going to be Jane Stanford and Wheeland Stanford leading civilization, the march of civilization into California. She's riding side saddle. He's riding a pith helmet. Supposedly on a journey they take him to find the route of the um, northern, excuse me, the Central Pacific Railroad, a journey that never, ever happened. Um, so the arch is there, and it's a monstrosity. Behind it is going to be a family. A portrait, excuse me, a statue of the family cast in bronze, which is going to be Leland Jane and Leland Jr., which still exists, but it's now been banished down to the mausoleum in a, in a different part of campus. And beyond that is going to be the church itself. The church still exists, but the original church was destroyed in the earthquake, where most of it was. The steeple came down, and the facade of the church, which had a, a giant mosaic banner, um, which said, in memory of my husband, Leland Stanford um, Sr., and in honor of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, with Leland Stanford getting the larger billing, that is going to come down and will never be rebuilt. So when the earthquake hits, it takes away all the ways in which it's a monument to the Stanford family. Um, and the university is quite particular in not resurrecting any of that. All of those monuments disappear. The name remains the same. But the way in which the Stanford family is just embedded in the institution at the moment you walk in, that will vanish. People who hated Jane Stanford, um, and there were many, uh, including her sister-in-law, regarded the earthquake as a just retribution 
for the way that she had treated people, including um, her in-laws. So that's how Stanford gets erased. What I'm, what I'm hoping the book will do, besides telling the story and the origins of Stanford University, is to get people to understand how universities are a product of their time, like any other social institution. That they really record the um, ways that the society operated at the time. And this is particularly going to be true of a private university which depends on private endowments. One of the things I want people to recognize then and now is the problem with philanthropy is philanthropists. When you take money from philanthropists, when you take these kind of donations, these things do not come without attachment. There are going to be ways in which they will continue to control the um, way that the university operates. This is very much the case. Stanford is a test case in the, in the thesis that the problem with philanthropy is philanthropists. And, and, and Leland Stanford is going to be lauded as a philanthropist. Andrew Carnegie, another one, is going to mention him as a shining example of what people should do with their fortunes. But I know it's still true at Stanford University. I mean, you walk around Stanford University and you look at the buildings, particularly the modern buildings, they all have the name of donors. That Stanford University will open up a lot of archives. The last thing that I'm going to let you see is um, the endowment and the conditions of the endowment. That stuff is kept secret. That's the kind of stuff that Stanford will let me investigate this murder. If I walked in today um, and wanted to see, well, what's the endowment? What about how is money being given to the university today? What conditions do you get it? I'd never see that. So this is a, a, a larger story. It's about one particular donor, one particular murder, um, why people had a motive for murdering her, and at the end, I won't reveal it here, who did murder her and why. Um, but it also has, I think, much larger implications. Well, thank you. Uh, I have just one follow-up minor question. Uh, I know you're emeritus now, but uh, what's next for you? Is there any uh, new projects that you're working on that you can just disclose at this time or you want to disclose at this time? Are you taking a vacation? Nothing I'd want to disclose at this time. The, you know, the, the ending of the book is, 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 is sort of ironic in the sense that um, the Stanford University was founded over the grief of a child. And as I finished this book, it had already entered publication, um, my wife died. Mm -hmm. And her deaths put everything on pause. So I have no idea what I'll do next. Okay. Good answer. Uh, well, thank you, Professor White, for joining, with, uh, joining me on the show today. Okay. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. I enjoyed it. Okay. So the book is... Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University, published earlier this year by W.W. W. Norton. Uh, the author is a pretty prominent historian, Richard White. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Tripp. This is New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network, and a production of the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.